Bibles to 2 Timothy, New Testament, 2 Timothy, chapter 3. I'd have to say this is probably, as a younger Christian, the most important little verse, a few verses that I depended upon coming from my um, rather secular understanding of all things in the world. It wasn't completely secular, wasn't completely humanist, but it was heavily influenced by my education and upbringing, which was pretty much that way. So, uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, Paul is writing this to one of the evangelists who are going about in the earth, setting up churches, making sure things were in order, and this is what Paul says, beginning in verse, let's say 14 instead. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You may be seated. Yes. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yes. Thank you. Let's pray. Um, Lord, thanks for this opportunity to spend time in your word, wrestling with it and, and our... Um, the world around us, the thoughts uh, that come into our minds each and every day. We depend upon you. Amen. Thanks, Paul. So, okay, after last time, I decided to put together a handful of sermons, small handful, in a series I will call The Basics. And a fuller name for the series will be so sorry, I'm not preaching on giants this week. Those came really looking forward to that interesting topic. I'm not doing it yet. I will. Fuller name for the series that I want to just kind of put a few together for is God's basic commands for both general and particular obedience. For both general and particular obedience. Obedience. The first sermon in the series was my last sermon. I called it Fill the Earth. I believe it is, is a command not only for mankind in general, but for each of us in particular. I find too often people approach those seminal commands in Genesis those initial commands in Genesis as a general purpose for mankind, but they kind of excuse themselves from fulfilling those commands. It's as if because uh, they're part of mankind that, that they somehow are obeying the command as a human participant simply by existing. But then they excuse themselves from action actually having to perform 
those things. They approach these Genesis from the beginning commands, believing that what is good for mankind as a whole is not necessarily good for me. And I don't think that's how it works. That's not how God is. Let me explain. The God of the Bible is the triune God. Three in one. He is one, and he's also many. Our God, Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the triune God created his world to work the same way. So in all things, there is unity, but it is, it is to be expressed by the many. As an example, they say there is a domestic cat species called Feliscatus. Feliscatus. And within that species, they identify many particular domestic cats. The Siamese cat, the British shorthair, the Persian cat, the Maine coon, the American shorthair, the sphinx, and whatever that thing is called that Abby has created an apartment for in our side porch. Each particular brand of domestic cat is part of the one species, Felis catus. They each must do their cat part in order to be considered Felis catus. And cats will be cats. But man, created in the image of God, has a long history of not obeying and properly fulfilling his or her purpose as a human, one of God's image bearers. People have chosen leisure over work. Wrong. They've chosen destruction rather than construction. They've chosen treachery over trustworthiness. They've pursued sensual pleasures in place of self-control. At times, people have been careless with creatures and creation rather than demonstrating proper stewardship. And as I mentioned in the first sermon, they have chosen barrenness rather than to fill the earth. Again, I remind you of the one and the many. God has created us and instructed us as man, mankind, as people, but still each must perform as his creature obeying his instructions. Now, in this little series, to make my argument, there's a spine that will run down the middle of it, and the spine I'm claiming, okay, is the sufficiency of Scripture, sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficiency is the key. 
I will argue today, number one, that the Bible alone must be your rule of life. Secondly, number two, I plan to challenge the notion that newfound knowledge, okay, so-called scientific, psychiatric, sociological, climatic, or whatever other form of data we accumulate, not any of it, can edit, change, eradicate, alter, or be used to set aside what the Bible clearly teaches. And I do understand (laughs) how easy it is to say the Bible clearly teaches, yet get it completely wrong by faulty interpretation. Finally, it should be your practice, number three, always to study, to learn God's word and obey it. That is life's great duty for every single image bearer. We all answer to God, both the believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also those who must still repent and follow him. So, number one, the Bible alone must be your rule of life. I read what Paul wrote to Timothy gave him instructions so that he might help put the churches in order all throughout that first century. Paul and Barnabas and others would preach and teach and gain converts to Jesus, and then Timothy and others would stay behind, set things in order, ordain elders for those churches, and move on. Paul was an apostle. He was an office bearer for Jesus, and so was Timothy. He was an evangelist, a different office that existed in the first century. In any case, what Paul told Timothy, encouraging him in his youth growing up and depending upon the sacred writings, which were all Old Testament writings, and then Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Those declarations are mighty impressive about the Word of God. Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God, able to make the man of God complete, You mean lacking nothing? Lacking nothing that God requires of us? Yes. If he didn't say it here, he does not require it of us. If he said it here, he requires it of us. And I'll have you know, that no man understands this world and man's mission in it apart from God telling us. If God had not spoken after the fall, we'd all be walking in the walls and loving it. No, we are blind sinners leading other 
blind sinners away from God and toward the sin we like the most. And that sin can look proper and upright at times. We are that way until God intervened and told us his will. The will of God is told us in the Bible alone. This is how we learn about ourselves and what we should be and what we should do. We won't reason our way to understanding what God wants. Apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from God's word. Not at all. I say that because the heart, we're told in Scripture, the heart is deceptive beyond all else. Who can understand it? I'll keep those comments to my second point now. Listen. Okay, life's great duty, your great pursuit, should be to love God and enjoy Him forever. Westminster Confession. Heidelberg Catechism says the same basic thing. God created man good and in his image that is in true righteousness and holiness so that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. Jesus said it this way, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets could be, could be summarized in one of those two commandments. Do you know where Jesus comes up with such an idea? The Old Testament scripture, the sacred writings. There is uncertainty as to who wrote Psalm 119. Psalm 119. But the scripture text exalts the word of God like no other scripture text. You could turn there. Turn there for a second, if you if you will. In, God, in Psalm 119, God's word, in all its decrees, its statutes, testimonies, ordinances, commands, precepts, they're again and again spoken of as lasting and good and delightful. You'll see this in a moment. 100, there are 176 verses in Psalm 119 that express the truthfulness and wonderfulness and the need to obey all of what God has told us in writing, in writing. The structure of this chapter has got 22 stanzas, each starting with a different letter from the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit, and on and on. Each stanza in the psalm has eight verses, So go ahead and do the math if you're following this. 176 divided by 8 verses, 22 letters 
in the Hebrew alphabet. This is a tradition of the Eastern Orthodox Church. They believe that King David used this psalm to teach his son Solomon both the Hebrew alphabet and the alphabet of spiritual life. I just want you to look at the second stanza there with the letter bet. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? You find that if you're looking? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Certainly, certainly David and Solomon knew the privilege and beauty of building their lives in and around God's written, his written communication. I underline the word written. I want you to understand we're talking about his written communication. That's Trump, not Donald. That's the Trump card. Okay. They always worked, David and Solomon, at breathing it in and learning it better, for they used it to guard their way and to keep pure, according to this text. They, they understood the way your heart seeks the Lord is by refusing to wander from his commandments. You store up God's written word in your heart so that you won't inadvertently sin against him. If you don't know what it says, you're probably going to screw up. You store up God's written heart. You ask God to teach you his statutes. You speak his rules. And you should be delighting in his testimonies more than you delight in mounds of money, properties, and things. You and us, you and I must think deeply on his precepts. Fix our eyes on how he does things. And that's just one stanza of advice. There's 22 stanzas like this. Listen to this verse later on in Psalm 119, verse 160. It says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. How long will God's written righteous rules endure Forever. But not for me. Maybe it's good for you. Not for me. I'm thinking. I was sarcastic there. I'm thinking you best build your life around God's word. I don't care what else you hear out there. It won't change on you. Don't listen to others who imply it's archaic. <laughs> For when your days are over, you answer to him. No, 
That's not good enough. Let me say it this way. Each day you answer to him. Your ever-present triune God. For how you willingly obeyed him or didn't on that day. No. Each hour you answer to him. Each minute, right? You get the idea. Well then, let us return as churches and individual people to the beauty David knew, as well as the other biblical writers and saints, that the beauty of the sufficiency of Scripture. God has told us, and we must not doubt him, but embrace and obey what he said. Period. You get nothing else right in this life. I don't really care. You shouldn't really care if you fail on this. The word of God gives the world true moorings. God has told us what he wants in the Bible. It's the whole world's only anchor to keep people from drifting in oceans of doubt and error. Which brings me to the second point. I want to challenge the notion that newfound knowledge, so-called scientific, psychiatric, climatic, which I hope is actually a term there, and I didn't just say something like a sexual disease, all right? Climatic, or whatever other form of data we want to accumulate, not any of it, none of that can edit, change, eradicate, alter, or be used to set aside what the Bible clearly teaches. People are intelligent. We've been made in God's image. We think, we plan, we are creative, we engineer, we explore, we discover, we educate one another all the time. This is as God would have it. Also, Satan has grand intelligence. The problem is we've all gone rogue. We are scoundrels and, and don't want to listen to God. That's what makes us scoundrels, not because we look good on the outside or do some nice things. We are scoundrels. We don't want to listen to God. Satan has taught us his ways. And so the world has been filled with centuries of very intelligent Bad actors. Ways have been invented, oh, to avoid and ignore what God wants from us. Whole systems of thought have been given new names and terms to view the world as with a filter or film. One of the products we offer through GAPA Security Solutions is window filming or tinting so that sunlight, okay, for one thing, can't stream in and be too bright for those sitting maybe in an office area. It's not the primary reason we sell it. We sell it so that people on the outside have a hard time seeing inside 
to look at all that's going on in the office area. In the normal film that would be put on these, say, school administration office windows, if they're on the outside of a wall, the, the normal film would be like what they call a 5% film. That means it gives you about 5% visibility into the room. So, the lights are on in there and someone's standing out in the dark. They can kind of detect some things, but it's hard for them to, say, read what's on a computer screen or, or whatever. We also offer a 1% to 2% film. 1% to 2% film, you don't see through that hardly at all. You probably would notice that there's a body in the room, maybe, if the lights were on and you were outside. But it also makes the room very dark during the daytime, at least as it pertains to that window. This is what happens when, when men completely obscure the data of creation by using their unbiblical 5% or 1% to 2% terms. They use terms that make it hard to see what's really going on. They keep people from seeing things God's way. Ah. Wise King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, I turned my heart to know, to search out, and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He was doing these things in a good way. He was trying to understand God's world. That was Ecclesiastes 7.25. In Ecclesiastes 7.29, he came to this conclusion. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Of course, Satan started us lying didn't he, in the garden? You got a quick read on his view of God's word when he asked, did God actually say? You and I need to understand a few things about the world's knowledge. It's not pure, no. It's tainted. It's brazenly false and deceptive at times. Often, it can be lethal. It is that way because intelligent people, intelligent people, using God's good data, they take that data and so arrange it and twist it and interpret it according to a way they want to see it. And then they tell us how to think about it. This is especially evident in the soft sciences. Psychology, sociology, anthropology, political science, even archaeology. These are the categories invented, listen, to explain behavioral data. How people behave. 
And you'll notice these experts of the soft science, sciences, will not use biblical terms and reasons to describe the data. They don't want to speak in God's language. And also, barely, they don't know how to speak in it anymore. So psychologists use terms like depression, dysphoria, anxiety, kleptomania, intermittent explosive disorder. You don't want to be around that guy. Pyromania, conduct disorder, alcohol-related disorder. My dad was one of those. Delirium, obsessive-compulsive, claustrophobic, antisocial personality disorder, narcissism, paranoia, schizoid personality disorder, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Not one of those terms will you find in the Bible. But that's kind of the point. And yet they all attempt, they all attempt to explain unwanted behavior without God involved in the discussion, using terms and motives like guilt and judgment. And those terms that I just spit out there that I don't know what half of them mean, we all utilize terms like this to some degree or another, because we grew up, what well, we grew up in schools and among friends and working for businesses and watching television and all the waters in which we swim, we've heard these terms as explanations for why people do the things they do. Where are the Bible terms, I ask? Why don't we find psychology using God's actual terms like thief, Lack of faith in God, rebellion and rebellious son, judgmentalism, forgiveness, selfish ambition, vain conceit, guilt, humility, prayer, obedience, study, dominion, drunkenness, love one another, pride, humility, consider others as better than yourself, discipline, etc., etc. We could load it all up and pour it in. No. What has the church done? Well, congregants run off to psychologists and therapists to deal with their life's problems. I'm not condemning anybody, just saying. They do not run to the church because they believe the church only has minimal helps, not cutting-edge stuff, only antiquated advice. And what do pastors and elders do? They, they put their hands over their mouths. They are intimidated for fear that they don't know the real issues plaguing the soul of their loved one. Her, her problem is something for which the Bible offers no help. Really? Well, he probably needs to be medicated, God's word cannot help him to consider others better than himself. I had one elderly woman from our congregation 
who I think fancied herself a feminist. She told me that pastors are not very well trained to counsel people. Could be true to a degree, right? I expect it is a very imperfect attempt. We're all imperfect. But my feeling was and is that it all depends on what kind of counseling you're after. I have to believe God's word is sufficient for life. I have to believe that God will help you obey him if you truly want to obey him. And I do believe that life is difficult and sometimes things get heavy of heart. And that in those times, really, God's word and God must become more to you, not less. This doesn't mean that intelligent men should not work at understanding, okay, those relationships between sin and righteousness and judgment and forgiveness and the depths of soul at which some of these things can collide and kiss one another. I think there's value in that. But let's consider the subject from God's point of view. We've been created by him. And let us use, use biblical terms so as not to let the godless commandeer good efforts, which I think in some ways is far too late. Because I tell you, highly intelligent sinners are motivated. They're motivated to figure out a world that, that, no, man, that it, no man has to answer to God in. And even the stupid sinners, they too become pretty smart, pretty smart when it comes to protecting their sins and avoiding accusation. Wow. Oh, I don't have much of an education. I only went, you know, through the fourth grade. And, but boy, oh boy, do they become sharp as a tack when it comes to dealing with terms used in another Soft science, the soft science of sociology, include anomie, bourgeois, social mobility, positive sanction, resocialization, gender role, multiculturalism, triad, power elite, stigma, conflict theory, society's rewards, counterculture, urbanization, cultural relativism, neocolonialism, proletariat, significant other, halo effect, deviant subculture, value recidivism, oh, sorry, value recidivism, working class, secondary deviance, and so many more. I mean, these lists go on forever, and they'll come up with three more tomorrow, I'll guarantee you, to try to explain something. Where are God's terms for Society and the interaction, right, in society, influences of people and people groups and the work they do, which is the data that sociology claims to analyze. Where are those words? Where's covenant? And blessing and curses and plague and fruitfulness and love and dominion and sin and poor and rich and wealthy and trade and upright scales and female, family, nation, male, battle, murder, justice, 
His blood shall be shed. Let let him who does not work not eat. Repay your parents. Fruit of the womb is a reward. Honor your father and mother. You shall not steal. Better is a day in the Lord's courts than a thousand elsewhere. Give and it shall be given to you. Where are those things? To describe and explain the interaction of peoples. Look, a person can use terms not found in the Bible. I'm not arguing that. Trinity. We use terms not found in the Bible. And they can use those terms in these uh, soft science categories. But as they attempt to explain and guide human behavior, let's make sure those terms are describing biblical concepts. Or what do you have? Christian, you and I use these terms. However, we mustn't let them take us away from the self-sufficient source of truth. God won't go with you if your heart gravitates toward non-biblical explanations because they offer, what, excuse? Sleight of hand? Blindness? Rather than demanding people to conform their behavior to his word. That's when he goes with you. When you're conforming to his word. You need to start believing God's word. It doesn't change forever. It won't be modified by some discovery or invention or highly intelligent person's theory that doesn't involve him or his word. It won't won't happen. It won't change. And here is where the intelligent Christian, because some of us are smarter and some of us are stupider, and I'm in the latter camp half the time. Here is where the intelligent Christian can get tripped up. Some in the church cracked open a door for natural revelation, learning from God's world, which we do, But they cracked open the door for natural revelation to influence, inform, give advice, better advice to sometimes, how we view God's special revelation, his Bible, the word. His written word. Whereas scripture should always be used to explain the world around us, not the other way around. And the problem really engulfed some in the CRC, our denomination, to the extent that Classis Grand Rapids East, as a group of churches, pretty fully support homosexual behavior and other things. And they have taken the Bible and modified Scripture, looked at it and tried to look at it in a way that it would fit with the current view, the societal view, the world around us view, of such a behavior. 
And they hold up as a banner, which we would agree with what the banner says, but they hold up as a banner and a defense, reformed but always reforming. Which means that, you know, we don't have all things right. We need to reform, be reformed in our thinking, but also reform in our understanding of God's word. If we got something wrong, we got to get it right. But the thing that they're doing, reformed but always reforming, is they're reforming the Bible to comport with societal interpretations of good and evil and right and wrong. Here's where my warning comes in for you super intelligent types. There's a man named Martin Gouri, not, not a Christian. He wrote a book called Revolt of the Public. Revolt of the Public. And Gouri, he, what he was, was an analyst for the CIA, information analyst. So he'd always be seeing what's going on there informationally and trying to take it in and quantify it and qualify it. Then he eventually quit. He published this book, Revolt of the Public. Gurry is greatly concerned that America will collapse based upon his, you know, expertise, which he feels that the public's, that means all of us citizens, the public's unlimited, unlimited access to information has kind of exposed government. Kind of like government has become, you know, where everybody can see the king has no clothes. People can get information at the, at the click of a mouse and examine all kinds of stuff. We all do that. I think we all do it. I do it. There's no longer the ability, says Gurry, for the government to they don't have the ability to throttle the data and, and control the narrative. They try. You've seen it happen. White House press conference rooms. That happens all the time. Where the, the official word to the reporters is what, how the government, or the president in that case, would want you to see things. Well, that doesn't stop anybody anymore. Click, click, click. So people are now able to see through lies or stories that don't add up. Also, they have quick access to many competing narratives. Not all of those are good, but they're stories to explain what really went on, right? And when the people, Gurries thinks, when the people lose confidence in their governors, that's not a good thing. And we would agree. Listen to this. Gurry writes, this is amazing to me, more information was generated in 2001 than, than in all the previous existence of our species on earth. In fact, 2001 doubled the previous total. And 2002 doubled the amount present in 2001, adding around 23 exabytes of new information, roughly the equivalent of 140, roughly the equivalent in one year of 140,000 Library of Congress collections. 
Growth and information had been historically slow and additive. It was now exponential. Okay, here, this is still for the highly intelligent. Okay, Christian, Christians, waiting for natural revelation to inform you on what God's word really means. Are you supposed to keep up with that? All that flood of information you think you're going to keep up with any of it? I don't think so. There's probably all kinds of things already out there that we have no clue exist that completely transform and eradicate things that we believe from the Scripture and support whatever it is that person's trying to prove. Gurry comments, Today we drown in data, yet thirst for meaning. We thirst for meaning. That world-transforming tidal wave of information has disproportionately worsened the noise-to-signal ratio. According to Nasim Talib, the more data you get, the less you know what is going on. So listen. If you're the type of Christian that tends to doubt God's word when some new discovery is made, if you're the type of Christian that is ready to tweak or ignore scriptural interpretations to fit God's word into what science and politics and psychology and educational theory have invented, then you are certainly a ship without much of an anchor. You'll never be sure of what God wants. Yet he expects you to be. Gary North writes, The quest for exhaustive knowledge is inherently demonic. The desire to play God. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The word. Number three, short. Always study to learn God's word and obey it. That is life's great duty for every image bearer. Men and women come and go. If they are intelligent, but godless, They've done great harm to many others. If they are stupid, godless people, they probably hurt only themselves and their families. What will you do? What data will you believe? There's more than you'll ever know. No one gets exhaustive knowledge. So who will you trust to counsel you? Why? Why not? How will you invest your time? My money is on God and his word. He made us to bear his image, his way, and he did it by giving us his written communication. Let scripture interpret scripture. Be, let that be your interpretive safeguard. Do not be a foolish one who runs to and fro here and there, listening to every wind of doctrine, reading every new study, 
thinking and saying, it's true, people believe this, they have done research, it's a thing. You will never keep up, especially at the current tidal wave volume of added information. Instead, take the Apostle Paul's advice. It's much better than Sigmund Freud's or Carl Jung's. Paul says, speaking of Jesus, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. (laughs) That's good advice. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let us pray. Lord, I pray and I ask that you to bless the, the preaching, the preparation of this, the reading of your word and its um, application at points here. Pray that we would be good thinkers, intelligent people in this uh, congregation, but um, that our, our greatest goal would be to understand what you have said and to obey it. 